in this year of turbulence. There's been moments where I felt just so completely overwhelmed. Three artists of color. It's liberated me from this idea that we have to do anything conventionally or that we have to do things the way that they've been done. We can't anymore. Share how the COVID-19 pandemic, George Floyd's death and racial justice protests have affected them personally and professionally. Art isn't secondary. It's it's what's special about us, goddammit. This is Life on the Margins. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas and eventually the Kenyans. Welcome to Life on the Margins. I'm Enrique Cerna. I'm Jenny Palmer. And I'm Marcus Harrison Green. Well, welcome, everybody. Good to have you here. And, you know, we're at about two months of doing this podcast. And the one thing we can say for sure is that we have gone through a lot of change. And every day seems like there is something new. I have to admit, it's sometimes a little exhausting. Yeah, I mean, that might be a bit of an understatement, Enrique. I remember when we first started this show, you know, we started around the pandemic and, you know, wanting to very much amplify the voices of communities of color and then literally what a month into it we were either a rolling protest across the country we're dealing now with two pandemics one of, of racism that has you know existed in since time immemorial and another with this covid crisis and neither one seems to be abating anytime soon unfortunately i think it's actually a historic time that uh, we're fortunate to be doing this podcast because we're going through well, the pandemic isn't that much fun, let's face it, but we're seeing a huge shift in this country, I think, generationally, in how we're trying to deal with racism and the pandemic of racism, police accountability. Of course, it's an election year, but this is a historic time, I think, and there's a big shift in the country that people are trying to take on an issue of racism, particularly and COVID actually, I think, has helped to push us along because it unveiled many disparities that we're facing in this country. And now we have an opportunity to make a big shift and a big change that hopefully will be for the best. So we have great opportunity. It's a matter of you know, taking advantage of that. And as we're going to hear from our guests today who are writers and performers, artists, their world obviously has changed as well, not only in trying to make a living, but just what they do and the work they do and the fact that the messages that they send through their performances and their writings have shifted. And many of them are dealing with trying to figure out how to communicate all of that. And, and I think in many ways, the opportunity to be heard like never before. So... That, I think, is is a great opportunity for them as well. Sure. The shift, like you're talking about with COVID and, you know, this racial pandemic, it's so much of it is a perceptual shift with, within our community and, like, kind of recognizing what the ills of, like, our society and what we've been enduring and also the discontent, economically speaking, all of that. But, like, for me, what art does is it helps it really helps perpetuate that like that shift of perception you know whether it be through the murals that artists are painting what they're writing the music that they're creating i think that that all like really collectively helps 
drive change. And I'm looking forward to talking to the artists that we have lined up for today's show. Right, because I think this is a, a time period where so many people are seeking a newer world or, or a better world, or at least a vision of a better world. And who better than artists who you know spend their days sort of conjuring up new things that we can imagine? You know, who better better than them to help us down that this path of you know discovering a, a new world, or at least an, an ideal world, or a more ideal world, I should say, than the one that we're currently living in. We also want to tell folks that we have something special coming up on Thursday evening, July 2nd, 7 p.m., and it's going to be online, a live episode of Life in the Margins from Town Hall, Seattle. That's right. We'll talk about the alarming surge in COVID-19 cases in our state and across the nation with Dr. Julian Perez, who heads up the COVID response for CMAR Community Health Clinic. We'll look at how communities of color have been impacted by the pandemic and the efforts to reach out to them to curb the virus. We're also going to talk with best-selling author Ijeoma Luo, who we featured on our first episode, about our pandemic of racism and whether America is ready for change. Please join us Thursday evening beginning at 7 p.m. live from Town Hall. For more information about how to join us online, click on the link in the episode description below. I got to say that I'm super excited to talk to Ijeoma. We had her on the very first episode of Life on the Margins, and now we're kind of coming full circle. She actually just hit number one with a bullet again on the New York Times bestseller list for her book, So You Want to Talk About Race. So it should be uh, fairly interesting to see what she has to say now that, you know, this two months has uh, passed, Enrique. That's right. Uh, I would think that she has a lot to say about what's been happening. And uh, as someone who has written so extensively about the issues of race in our country, it's going to be a good opportunity to hear what she has to say. All right, let's move on. Reagan Jackson holds many titles, writer, author, award-winning journalist, educator, and artist. But right now, we give her one more title, guest. Reagan, you're an artist, poet, journalist and activist who works for a living empowering young marginalized women at Young Women Empowered. You also co-host The Deep End Friends, a podcast where you explore liberation, healing, hope, and ask what it means to be free. We're actually going to be touching on that theme, the idea and meaning of freedom in our next live episode. And I'd like to circle back on that idea. But first, I want to ask you about your involvement in CHOP and your experiences as an activist during this time. During the Capitol Hill organized protest, you and Mary Williams organized a Juneteenth blackout at CHOP, a series of events centered around Black healing and community. You conducted a grief ritual. There was meditation, healing, and dancing. Can you tell me about that? What was your experience there? Gosh, I feel like I could actually write a book on just that that 12 hours uh, at the CHOP because uh, my experience, I feel like it varied from hour to hour, from minute to minute. Uh, There were moments where it was just this beautiful, cathartic experience where people were releasing, expressing their grief, crying, praying to their ancestors, flirting, dancing, making flower crowns, laughing at silly jokes, eating good food, being attacked verbally, being called nigger. I mean, like, it just was like the full spectrum. (laughs) But backing up, All of this came together very quickly. This was not actually something that I had planned to do. But Mary Williams, on the Monday before Juneteenth, wrote an open letter to the CHOP on Facebook and then tagged me in it and just talked about uh, her experience of going there and feeling 
uh, like something that started as this really beautiful and powerful protest had kind of devolved into this quasi-political street fair <laughs> and wanting to just take a moment to refocus the intention and the spirit of the chop and to really galvanize that energy that supposedly is, is for support of Black Lives Matter and, and make it into something that actually was for Black people. Did you have any concern that uh, the fact that CHOP at times turned into like it was like the Capitol Hill block party, that it was being co-opted a bit for what people had initially, you know, gathered for? Yeah, I mean, I mean, and maybe that's an autonomous zone by definition. (laughs) It's just, it's very emergent and there's lots of people and they all have their own agendas and, and things that are important to them. And they all move in different in different ways, and I'm not surprised by the results. And yeah, we just wanted to push the envelope a little bit because you know you walk into the you walk into the chop, and somebody anybody could just scream Black Lives Matter, who lives whose lives matter, and everybody's like Black Lives Matter. But then like when you're actually putting that into practice, like does my life matter? If I'm not a hashtag, do you care about me? If I'm still alive to to live and breathe. Is my life important? We really ask a question, I think, to our city, and we had a really interesting answer. Yeah, you, you said you asked a question to the city. Um, I know you also sort of dealt with the realities of, of what was going on as well and trying to find joy in a, a time period <laughs> where there isn't a lot of it to, to go around. And, and I know you wrote a, a wonderful essay for the Emerald um, that was published about your experience. And there's this great line in there you talk about how. Black folks showed up to do yoga and had to show up in sneakers in case they had to run away. <laughs> Can you just talk about sort of that consciousness that, you know, you have to hold at really as a Black person that I think was, you know, epitomized by what you all were doing here in shopping? Yeah, I mean, basically, and this sounds, it, it sounds really dramatic to say it like, oh, and I don't mean it to be like that, but the truth is like, I woke up that morning and was like, is this the last time I come home? I don't know. So it wasn't like, we didn't know. We weren't sure what was gonna happen. But the truth is, we're never fucking sure. We're never sure. We don't know what's gonna happen. The things that are just normal, things that happen in your daily life, go for a walk, go for a run, go for dinner with a friend and and end up being shot to death in your car, it, you, you know, like that's, that is the reality of, and the level of intensity that we've all been dealing with this whole time. So while I was having that moment of like, am I gonna come home? You know, like, <laughs> am I gonna come home? I was also realizing like, I've been having this moment, it's not new. The only difference is instead of acquiescing to to that feeling, to that, Okay, well, I'm gonna do everything I can to be respectable. I'm gonna, I'm gonna dress nicely when I go to the airport. I'm gonna, you know, like I'm gonna do all the things that a a good Negro would do uh, to make sure that I'm safe. Like uh, I, we just kind of let that go because we realize we're just not safe anyway. So why not be the why why not go to the chop? <laughs> like why not? Because at a certain point you have to think about like what is the quality of life that we're actually even fighting for. Am I fighting to just kind of have some minimal existence where I don't get to experience joy or even grief or any emotion that white people don't think that I should have? <laughs> like, like it just, but it was hard. It was really hard to talk to, 
to people to have people inboxing me and and asking me like do you have armed people with guns protecting you because if you don't i i'm not coming to this event like i need to know that there's somebody on our side with a gun because speaking of that i mean you you talked about how there were armed you know white supremacist folks who were there and you know it was mainly women who went up to to protect uh, what you all were trying to do can you just talk a little bit about that and kind of what that whole entire thing sort of encapsulates in terms of you're here trying to do a very peaceful joyous thing and it gets met with violence you you know what what does that say (laughs) not just about what happened on that Friday, but just where we're at in this country right now. I mean, y'all know what it is. (laughs) You know what it is. This is, this is where we are. And honestly, like part of, I think why women especially really responded to the call for support is that my work is steeped in, in supporting other women. And so I've, I roll deep with, with the community of women. So I wasn't surprised by that, but I think, some of them were surprised by the level of intensity that they experienced in our debrief with with some of the the volunteers like i don't think they'd ever really been put in a position to put their their bodies on the line on the line in that way and i think it really clarified some things for them about our our feelings of lack of safety so in a way i feel like it was it was helpful to build empathy uh, that wasn't necessarily the intention behind it. Like I was literally just thinking we need support and I'm willing to work with whoever understands what we're doing and is willing to work with us. But also that that's been kind of the end result is people are like, wow, that's deep. That's intense. Like, you know, hearing from, I heard from one woman who was like, oh yeah, I really wanted to wear a dress today. But then I was like, what happens if I have to run? I don't want to be all like sticking out, you know, and I want to be in my pants and my gym shoes, like, cause I'm trying to survive. Did you wear your gym shoes in case you had to run? No, I actually, uh, I went barefoot for the majority of the day. Mary and I made a commitment. We made the decision that we were going to hold that space for 12 hours. So I wasn't looking to run. And I also wasn't really looking to fight, but I will do what is necessary. I'm curious, Reagan. So much has been going on here in recent months. This year has been just, it's chaos, 2020 chaos. <laughs> yeah. From COVID to... Uh, Everything. Yes, the, the murder of uh, George Floyd, as well as others. And now this um, awakening about the move for change with social and racial justice. How has all of this affected you in your work? Well, it's been, there's been a huge impact. I mean, first of all, just logistically trying to figure out how to take our, our in-person programs that are, that are built on, on community building and, and being together and doing experiential activities together and like completely reconceptualize how that is done and make it adaptable and accessible digitally. That, too, that was more than a notion. That took plenty of time and space just to figure that out. But then also like, thinking through how you do community uh, at, at this time and, and how to meet youth's needs, especially that are maybe don't have the best home situation and now are suddenly finding, finding themselves stuck at home with people who are unkind or abusive or neglectful. 
yeah, we, we've had to increase our, our attention to social work and to um, emotional, to the emotional welfare of our youth tenfold and make sure that there are more ways for them to, to find um, outlets. And we've also, uh, in addition to the digital things, have been sending care packages just as that added like personal touch in because, you know, if you can't, I mean, it's, it's nice to physically receive a thing <laughs> as opposed to just being, being on a screen the whole time. In terms of this year, though, with COVID, while it's been extremely inconvenient and it's definitely made me, you know, have to figure out how do you, how do I live? <laughs> Where do I live? What, like, what's important? How do I do community? How do I do all these different things? It's also, I think, liberated me from this idea that we have to do anything conventionally or that we have to do things the way that they've been done. We can't anymore. And I think that's an interesting parallel to, to put within this this huge kind of spiritual awakening that I see our country going through where we're no longer able to ignore the the oppression and the the fear and the the intensity of this moment for for people of color and for particularly for black people. But now that we've literally seen our lives change in, in moments because of COVID, we know that we can change our lives <laughs> in a moment. So in a way, it, it's more frustrating because I'm like, if we could have been changing things, like, <laughs> why aren't things better? But it's also this moment where I'm like, okay, it's now. Well, speaking of that, I, I know that you are sort of the Serena Williams in the Seattle arts community. I, I'm, going with, <laughs> I'm going with Serena and not Michael Jordan after that last dance documentary. But anyhow. Okay, but I love that. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But no, I know you're a huge fan, obviously, of Toni Morrison. You know, Toni talks about it, it. She talks about the role of artists, meaning that there's it's no time for despair. There's no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. And for her, that was sort of the, the role in an artist in creating change and revolution and transformation. For you, you know, what what is the, the role of artists today, especially as you say, we're, we're dealing with these dual pandemics, you know, one that has lasted in time immemorial and one <laughs> who knows how long it'll last with our, uh, especially if either the certain person who's in charge now of our country continues to be. Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of you kind of hit it on the head. I feel like our, our role as artists is to innovate and to create and also to to apply our imagination and our creativity to solving these problems that have plagued us. Like clearly thinking with inside the box and with inside the framework is not getting us anywhere. And things tend to tend to continue as they've started. So it's time to like make a new start. The biggest challenge I think to that in this now moment is fatigue, <laughs> exhaustion. Every artist I know has been creating, has been innovating, has been like trying to change and shift for years and years, and they're tired now. <laughs> That's part of the reason I think too why why our work seems to have resonated with so many is that there are just so many people that are so exhausted that they will risk death to come do yoga, to come meditate, to cry in a park because it's just necessary in order for them to refill their cups to then begin to even think about how to tackle all the things we have to tackle now. And where do you stand with that? Do you feel exhausted or what yeah. role has art played for you? I mean, right. Like, yes, <laughs> yes, absolutely. <I> do. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, for me, like my visual art is actually um, is a meditation in and of itself for me. Um, and it's something that I haven't I don't feel like I have had the time to really invest in at this time. But when I have, it's been something that's that's been restorative for me. So like I had the opportunity uh, a couple of weeks ago to go to the International District and, and paint Black Lives Matter murals. And so you can check out my mural. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> <laughs> We're at the, um, I'm going to say on the corner of Jackson by Theater Off Jackson. That's awesome. Um, so I would love to bring it back to that idea of freedom um, that I mentioned in the intro. In consideration of your recent Crosscar article about Juneteenth, your experience at CHOP, your exploration of liberation on your podcast, I'm curious to know what freedom means to you. What does that look like or what does it not look like in your life? Ooh, I mean, I feel like my definition changes every day. But what freedom is feeling like right now is um, is embracing the concept of radical self-love, is liberating myself from the ideas of all the ways in which I've ever been told that I was wrong or not okay or not not doing things the right way or, you know, like... I feel like I'm liberating myself from convention and that that freedom is allowing me to move differently than I've moved before and to to act in different ways and to to shape experiences differently without the need to to without the need to be respectable without the need to be acceptable. I feel like I've been socialized in a very specific way. And that and that way has been helpful in getting me getting me places I needed to go and getting me access to resources that I've needed. But now I feel like there's there's something about that kind of constriction that is no longer serving me. Like freedom is having the capacity to move beyond what has been into what I want it to be. Well, I know that's uh, you're describing a, a personal uh, in- individual freedom. Are you hopeful that we can get towards a more collective societal freedom here in, in the United States? Absolutely. But I, I think one comes before the other. I think about, and this feels a little cliche, but Harriet Tubman, you know, she talks about, I would have freed a whole bunch more people too, <laughs> if they had known that they were enslaved. Um, now is our moment where it's like, hey, guess what? We're not free. <laughs> like, I'm not free if I can't go to the grocery store and come back alive. I'm not free if like at any moment the police can kick through my door and shoot me in my own house. Like that's not freedom. (laughs) So, you know, I think collectively, I don't know that that's even been acknowledged yet (laughs) about the fact that that, that that is a form of, is is a form of oppression, a form of slavery is like just lack of safety, um, lack of, basic human rights. <laughs> so as each of us have, you know, the, our collective awakenings and our whatever, from wherever we are, I feel like all of us, wherever we are positioned now are, are in a position to have an experience of, of critical thinking and, <laughs> and, and uh, an awakening into what is ours to do and how we can, can act accordingly into, to our values and our morals and to the ethics that should uphold human rights. What do you say to young people, particularly young white people, who are real interested in being allies Mm. to the Black community now and feel a need to 
reach out and to be there, to be a source of support and strength. What do you want from them? What do you hope they'll do? Um, well, two things. One, at this now moment, unless I'm like personally or like professionally connected with the young white person, like if it's something like they're in they're in my program, then we'll then we can have those conversations. But outside of that, I've been uh, referring them to my colleagues who are white to do that emotional labor and the framing with them. But in terms of my expectations, um, I expect them to listen. I expect them to um, open their hearts and pay deep attention to the ways in which their friends, um, and in some cases their family members are, are treated so unjustly. I want them to develop a strong reaction, um, like an allergic reaction. I want them to become allergic to the ways in which this behavior and this, this pattern of being and this system of being is 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 so toxic to us. I think and this I always I always feel like I come back with such simple answers, but it, it feels true to me. I think one of the reasons why things have been able to devolve into such a state is that there is a lack of empathy and there is a lack of understanding. And I think that young people are poised to be able to they're not to, just to be able to 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 have that experience or to to allow themselves to to really feel deeply and allow those feelings to to shape how they choose to act in the future and systems that they choose to uphold and support and which ones they choose to dismantle. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done, um, and we are all responsible for it. Reagan Jackson, thank you so much for speaking with us here on Life on the Margins. Appreciate you. Appreciate all the work you're doing and would love to try to move that needle, get those allergic reactions going, get more consciousness. And hopefully all of your experiences, you can walk out of your door and feel safe. And if people want to follow you, they can uh, listen to The Deep End. And, and that podcast is available wherever podcasts are, are available. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. We uh, just put up a Mary just put up a website for uh, our blackout events, even though we've decided um, at this point, the chop is entirely too unstable for us to do the work we need to do. Um, but the work is still necessary. So we'll be hosting blackouts um, throughout the city. Our next one will be July 12th at um, Jimi Hendrix Park from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. And uh, you can find out more about that at www.blackouthealing.love. Claudia Castro Luna became Washington State Poet Laureate in 2018. Prior to being named to the post, she was Seattle's first civic poet. Born in El Salvador, Luna fled the country with her family in 1981 during a time of civil conflict in that war-torn country. Today, as we confront pandemic, racism, and police brutality, the State Poet Laureate finds herself feeling a mix of emotions. She leans on her family, her work as a teacher, writer, and poetry to help her cope. I have fluctuated from feeling very hopeful at seeing the protests and just seeing the tremendous action and the outrage on the part of so many people of all backgrounds. That's been really hopeful. I've been inspired by young people 
who are organizing and coalescing and discussing and getting us out into the streets. I think that's really powerful and important. And I'm hopeful for that. At the same time, there's been, there's been moments where I felt just so completely overwhelmed. The demonstrations of racism in the country and the violence against people of color and black bodies completely unable to really do much, just sitting down. I've been doing a lot of sitting down and just staring. Writing has been difficult, I think, because of that. So in the spring, I teach at Seattle U, and that's been really wonderful. Once again, I had a very a great experience with the, with the young people. It, it really energizes me to teach at that level with, with young, very young college students. So that kept me busy for a while, but as the class and we, as we were winding down, all of the protests were kind of rising up and that just was very hard to process. Did your students want to talk about it? Oh yeah, we did. I mean, it so happened that my class that I teach is a class called Responses to Peace and Justice. And so the way I have organized the class is looking at historical moments in U.S. history. People came together where art played an integral role in popular movements that resulted in in huge change, in in fundamental change in laws being changed uh, in the country. We looked at civil rights and, and songs, for instance, gospel songs that were so central to that movement and the poetry of the women's liberation movement. I mean, Audre Lorde, Adrian Rich. And so we were embedded in looking at art expressions uh, for peace and justice. And suddenly it was, we were doing during COVID and in the middle of the term that George Floyd murdered happened And the protests exploded and suddenly we were living what we were reading about. And so it was it was really good in that we had created a framework to think about moments, historical moments and how people dealt with that. So it was useful. We had very useful discussions. I think it was very helpful for me have that framework to talk about it with the students and to get them writing about it and thinking about themselves in the larger historical context. And it was very good. It was I was we were lucky to have been in that class. And you're doing it virtually too. Which was a huge undertaking. I've never done a Zoom conversation, I don't think, until <laughs> until that happened. And in person is so much better. Were you able to find something inside you to write it down? Yeah. I mean, I think I've written little snippets that will become something I had been before George Floyd, I had been thinking a lot about the 100th year anniversary of women's suffrage. So had written some things into that. Also about the pandemic, isolation and the not knowing. The writing is very different. You know, my thinking is very different in the sense that now this aperture with this racial reckoning has been opened. People of color have been writing about this. We have been writing poems about this. We have been telling stories about this. Great essays have been written about this. Great journalism has... I mean, we have been saying these things. Nothing... It wasn't heard. I don't know about you, but my frustration as a person of color is like, why did this take so long? Yeah. Yeah. You wrote a piece, as you mentioned, and I wonder if you would share that with me, a piece of poetry. 
Yeah, this piece was it, the, is the last poem I've written. And I was thinking about women's suffrage, about immigration reform, about the children at the border. I think I, I was finishing the poem the weekend that George Floyd was murdered. So it, it has all these threads in it. So her way. It matters how we walk the world. To see with heart matters. To acknowledge grief to see in others the same sparkle so familiar in our own mother's eye, to learn the old names, to say them with dignity, that is important. Courage is not a crown, more like chattering of teeth, the knot in the stomach at choosing the long, hard way, owning what is not known, that takes courage, and knowing that hunger can be for bread as for justice. Having a glimpse of home is part of it, not homes had, but the ones to build, where there will be room for everyone at the table, and for those who only want a cold glass of lemonade, there will be a porch on the sunny side of the street under the knowing eye of a wise nearby tree. Very beautiful. You also created during this time poetry to lean on. Basically, it was an opportunity for people from wherever to submit poetry, maybe that something that they read, but eventually that they started writing. The first few entries in that blog are, you know, other people's poems that people took solace in, and they're very beautiful. But as the as the pandemic wore on and I kept on posting poetry, people were sending poems of their own. And that I just thought was wonderful because the poems range from all sorts of interests, you know, um, and you could almost, if you go back as I started it in March. So if you read back, you could almost see the different waves that we all have been experiencing as, um, you know, some of them, the the solace and the not knowing, and then the kind of telling of routines that then began to show up in people's uh, households, cutting each other's hair, things, you know, things like this, or gardening, lots of gardening. Um, and it's just funny poems to some teachers wrote, uh, yeah, people frustrated with people not wearing masks. You know, these are the things that we are all concerned with. And people turn them into into poems. It's beautiful. I'm so glad I did it. I hope it stays up as a record of this time in Washington State. Not not just here, but but you know, everywhere. Can you share one of those poems with me? So this is Francine Walls, who writes, I've attached a poem for your online community. Um, poetry is good for everyone and we need the arts more than ever right now. And this is called Emergency Poem. This is the poem for emergencies, like the spare batteries and extra gas you pack when you drive into the wilderness. When you discover you are lost, you can press any word in this poem and walk beside calm waters. This poem does not have water, food, shelter, or energy bars. Yet courage is hidden in every line. Before you crumple up this poem, feeling danger south, north, west, east, 
Remember love's gift to you, your next breath. Francine Waltz. Nice job, Francine. You have dealt with much adversity in your life. War in El Salvador, your native country where you were born. Fleeing the country, coming here as an immigrant, learning English, pursuing your work as a poet. Has that adversity helped you in dealing with what we're dealing with now? That's an amazing question. You're the first person to ask me that. The, the war in El Salvador, the time before the war, the, the time that we lived, my family, was so bleak and so scary. It was fear and terror are the two, I think, central words to the experience of being that, an overwhelming terror that, and this was, of course, state violence. So this is not a virus or but a very real, brutal, repressive state violence where, you know, police and soldiers could kill you. And they did. They gunned down people and they disappeared people, which was also a code word for murdered, disappeared, murdered and abandoned somewhere, right? Where you wouldn't find them or jailed. I mean, it was profound, deep state terror. That This is why seeing those, you know, those images of those armed police in the, I think this is the part that has been difficult for me during this time. Personally, watching those armed policemen that don't look like police, they look like the soldiers of a war. I think that that triggers all of these images from having lived in El Salvador and and the violence, the result of that violence was far more extreme than the one we're seeing now, as horrible as the one we're seeing now is. Um, so I think that's part of my difficulty with this time that, that makes me sit and just stare and just stare. I can't, it's hard to deal with both things because both things are happening internally, the past and what I'm watching and seeing now. Um, and that's hard to hard to sort out, hard to hold. The immigrant experience is a difficult one, especially when they come, when it is one where you're fleeing from war, where you don't have anything, where you're uh, poor and, you know, struggling. And yet we came out on the other side. My, my family did, my sister and myself. Um, and so I, I hold on to that hope, you know, I hold on to hope that we as a nation will come on the other side. Speaking of hope, you wrote a piece called Morning Star, which is about hope. Morning Star. Along the way, you do things you don't want to do. Things you know you should not do. Things you don't know how to stop doing. No one can see beyond the wave's crest. Then you find yourself sitting there wherever you are, blemished and imperfect. That is life. This carrying on of our dented selves alongside the spoonful of sugar we also carry within. A sweet grain for each good, right thing we too have done along the way. Our thanks to Claudia Castro Luna for the conversation and poetry. You can find out more about Poetry to Lean On, Claudia's books and poems by checking out her website, castroluna.com. Back in March, the COVID-19 pandemic and subsequent measures to contain the virus closed music venues across the country. 
For many musicians, this cut off their primary source of income and means of building an audience. Back in April, before the murder of George Floyd and countrywide protests against racial injustice, I caught up with Stephanie Ann Johnson, a musician from Tacoma and finalist on The Voice, to talk about what life was like for a performer when there aren't many places to perform. I started by asking her about how COVID-19 has affected her personally. I am a musician and um, like a facilitator and also a, a teacher as well. So all three of those jobs involve me being in touch with a lot of people. So I don't really have work the way I understand work. Lucky for me, though, one of my bandmates um, is super into uh, audiovisual uh, production. So he is helping me with uh, a weekly stream that I'm doing uh, Monday evenings at 7. Also, every day of the week, I put up a brand new video Monday through Saturday. It's at 9.30 a.m. And then Sunday, it's at 10.30. I started doing it because it keeps me sane. It's an activity that I can do that feels like joy and it feels like devotion. And I need those things. Right. How tough has it been not being able to perform? Is that your main source of income or does that affect like your livelihood in regards to you know, sustaining yourself or being able um, to Because I decided to be a musician um, and not a million other things, um, I didn't buy a house. Um, I don't own any property. I am not renting any spaces. I, you know, have not bought any expensive gear. I have no college loan debt, uh, which is great. So I kind of set myself up for this life. And now... I'm surviving off of the kindness of strangers. And uh, when I need to, I will dip into my savings. And I will continue to ride this thing out, man. Life is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, so I have, <laughs> I have looked at it like that. And it keeps me, keeps me cheerful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it keeps you motivated and going. So how are you staying motivated I get up and I sing classically and it really like having that um, as an anchor, like both as a craftsperson and emotionally because it regulates my breath. So really it's, it's reconnecting to, I, I like, I'm a lover. I love so many things and it's, it's now I have the time to pull out those things I love, you know, so musical theater, classical music, gospel music. Um, so really it is, you know, as we get older, we forget things, right? So you go into a room and you ask yourself, why did I come in here? What did I need? Um, but now we also all have the time to ask ourselves, well, what do, what do I like? Right. Well, do I like that? Well, I should get more of it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it, it brings us, you, you have to have this, I mean, all of us during this lockdown, either you're like, you're with, you know, perhaps a select amount of people, but there's so much time to, to get into your own mind and your body and like, you know, really be with yourself more. And I hope for most of us, that's a beautiful opportunity to figure that kind of stuff out. Like what brings you joy? Yeah. Well, I think the thing is a lot of us have been working 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And like with that kind of stress, like no one has time for hobbies. There's no time for stuff you love because you have to go do that work. Like that was me, you know, commuting to Seattle three, four days a week, working, 
musically doing something Tuesday through Sunday every week, you know, voice tired all the time because I'm always singing two, three gigs a day with a rehearsal on a Sunday. Like that's too much. So having the time to play guitar because it feels good to do, to sing because it feels good to do. You know, I, I, I love to do uh, workout like fitness videos with the YouTube. Come on. That's so fun. <laughs> yes, Just, for sure. Oh man, so much dancing in my life. I love it. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> and it's a great way to work out too, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually on that note of, you know, kind of thinking about how things were before the lockdown and, you know, our pace of life and all of that, like what do you hope to see change post-lockdown? Or what do you kind of hope sticks, you know? Listen, I am a full-on radical. I have, well, I have large hopes for the world, but let's save those um, and, you know, make it even smaller. Charity starts at home, right? Uh, so what do I hope sticks for me? I hope that I, I hope that I'm able to continue to create and value the time that I devote to resting. I had felt called to busyness because, hell, it's easy these days. But rest is necessary, and we must do the necessary things. Um, and then I also hope that the the predilection toward joy, I mean, I feel like I have a high capacity for joy. I think that's evident in my stage performance. But I think that in my m- more private life, I'm hoping to keep more of that that taste that I have developed for joy, joyful things. Yeah, right. And actually, I am going to have ask you to come back around, so touching on the greater world. So like not just yourself, but what are the changes that you hope to see in the outside world? You know, the, the, the C word is so important and we just have to get to it. Um, care. People need care. And we can pass the buck and we can do the work. My mother is a big proponent of... of of not saving things for good, you know, uh, her, her grandmother was this way, like, Oh, we have these nice things, but we'll use them at a different time. We'll, we'll, we'll save this for good. Mm -hmm. And I just think that, you know, the people that are already here that we have, I think we should spend the money on them. And I'm talking about poor folks and I'm talking about our kids who are vulnerable. We got to get them education. And I want kid led education. I want education based on what kids want to know. Because when it's something you want to know about, you'll investigate. And I think we are not encouraged to study things and think long and hard about things. And I want us to have the time to do that as a society. Um, so, you know, I want infrastructure things. The, the giant thing that I really, really want as a society is I want people to understand I'm a craftsperson, right? I'm a craftsperson. I am a person that builds things. I am blue collar. And I need this world to be kinder to blue collar people because we are the backbone of this. We build it, we set it up, we take it apart when it's done. And we do it with love. A lot of us do. And I think that there's something to be said for apprenticeship. I was mentored by many older and wiser musicians who put me on some beautiful paths and I just want to pay that forward, which is why I teach um, 
So I really hope that those of us that are blue collar in this world that are still working with our hands that are still making tables and chairs and your favorite songs, right? Um, I hope that we get a little bit of recognition and I hope that we get our unions sorted out with our leadership. And I hope that we go forward with um, this idea that, you know, art, art isn't secondary. It's, it's what's special about us. God damn it. Absolutely. And it's actually necessary in my world. Like music has, especially during this time of kind of, you know, I'm a pretty social creature. So like in this isolation, it's something that genuinely brings me joy and that I look forward to putting the music on and just, and just moving my body and listening. And it's, it, to me, it's necessary. Like art and the creation of it and sharing our lives and our voices, that is, that is so important. It's so beautiful. And I mean, what would life be without it? Yep. Yeah. So what do you see as the role of artists in this time? For me, my role, like in life, I kind of see as, um, I'm one of these people where I'm called to lead by example. So if I want folk to be joyful around me, I got to be joyful and show them how, right? So I put up the songs and they're all songs that I love and I giggle into the camera and I smile and I enjoy myself so much and I tell people to have a good day. And they do because they believe what I say because word sounds have power. Um, so I'm just trying to be really more intentional about the things that I say out loud more intentional about what I say on camera, what I say to myself, um, making sure that my song choice is personal and that it's okay to be a little nostalgic, not a lot nostalgic, just a little nostalgic. <laughs> and uh, what can the community do to help support artists like yourself? Um, really just two things. One for where I am, you know, I've, I've only got about 5,000 followers on the Facebook. Uh, so that's not a lot, but that's not nothing. And bless it, I'm grateful. But for artists that are at my level and, and a little bit above or whatever, you know, reach out personally. Send them a message and say, you know, I love what you're doing. Thank you very much. Pair that with what you are able financially to give. You know, go ahead and buy a record, buy some vinyl, you know. Um, I believe that it's Bandcamp. They they are doing uh, the first of May. That that day, you can uh, buy uh, music from your favorite indie artists uh, with no uh, no added percentage taken by the company, which is exciting. Um, so all of my music is up there on Bandcamp. If you want to look for it there, so just know that 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 there are there are so many ways to get your music. But the two things are. One, let them know personally. And two, give them some money. Yes. Oh, I guess. And the third thing, the third thing, um, share it, share out, share out. If you don't have money to give, give the gift of your attention and share out, share it with your friends. You know, be that person. I need those people. Absolutely. That's a huge part of it is like growing that audience, getting people to support you, not just financially, but through your words and through your time. And, you know, because so much of what you create is also moments of time that people get to experience with you or just listening on their own. And that's beautiful. Yes. Okay. So actually, is there anything else that you want to say that I didn't ask? 
Well, I just want to say that uh, during these trying times, you know, we've got folks like Mr. Rogers who remind us that in, in tragedy, uh, if, you, if you're feeling depressed, you know, open your eyes and look for the helpers, look for the people that are out there helping. And um, if you can't find those people, um, might not be a bad idea to try and be those people. Um, there's somebody in your life, I'm sure, who, who needs help or could need something as simple as uh, checking in on them, sending them a Facebook message or a text uh, to say, hello, how are you? You know, let's all, let's all feel invited and empowered to dig into the parts of ourselves that are still very pure and compassionate. And let's try our level best to meet the needs of those uh, closest to us. That's a wonderful sentiment, and I appreciate that. And that actually kind of reminds me of something that you touched on earlier about how you're coping and just being more generous with yourself and your, like, time. And I think it's really important to, like, try to figure out the things that bring you joy and create them. And you are, you are creating positivity in the world around you, not just through showing, like, your passion and sharing your music but also your opinions and your voice, you know, in regards to how to come together and be there for one another. And yes. hopefully all of it together can, this is, these are the sorts of things grassroots wise that we know that the neighbor next to us or the artist that lives in Tacoma, that we have good hearts and that we believe in not just ourselves, but the greater community, you know, and what we can do together and for each other. Yes, absolutely. I've been speaking with Stephanie Ann Johnson. To hear her music, check out Stephanie Ann Johnson and the High Dogs. Before we go, a reminder to join us Thursday evening at 7 p.m. online for a live episode of Life on the Margins from Town Hall, Seattle. We'll talk about the alarming surge in COVID-19 cases in our state and across the nation with Dr. Julian Perez, who heads up the COVID response for CMAR Community Health Clinic. We'll also talk with best-selling author Ijeoma Luo about our pandemic of racism and whether America is ready for change. Please join us Thursday evening beginning at 7 p.m. live from Town Hall, Seattle. For more information about how to join us online, just go to our show description. Life on the Margins is a co-production of the South Seattle Emerald and Town Hall, Seattle. I'm Ginny Palmer. I'm Marcus Harrison Green. Our music is courtesy of Seattle artist Dre's, and our producers are Jeff Shaw and Hans Anderson. And I'm Enrique Cerna. If you have a topic that you want us to cover or you want to give us some feedback, call and leave a message for us at 206-606-0222. Stay safe. Be well. We'll talk more later. I was born in the Central District, raised in the South End. I'm a homegrown kid, yep, 206 living. Used to play flyers up when I lived up on Union. Pushed it out to Orcas and eventually the Kenyans. Didn't have much, but thankful for all we was giving. It was all hood until we didn't see crept in. And the blacks went naked and gentrification came. Garfield Franklin, robberies ain't even the same. Mark my words. It go-